We'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you that we get to celebrate the resurrection today and look into your word. I thank you for the opportunity to know who you are and what you've done through your revelation. And we do pray, Lord, as we look at the book of Revelation today, that we would understand that you're the God who secures the victory for us, that you're not only the shepherd who cares, but the warrior who protects us and wins. And we thank you for being these things, Lord Jesus, that you're tender, but yet also a protector and fierce to the enemies that persecute us. And we thank you that we can trust you for our redemption and our kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, dear ones, this morning we're going to continue in Revelation chapter 9. I know it's been a while, and so we're going to be picking up here at the fifth trumpet judgment. And I want you to know that one of the big themes that I think we all agree on in Revelation is that God wins is, in fact, a major theme. And we're going to say a hearty amen to that. And the reason I mention that is we're in the fifth trumpet. You're going to see these demons released from the abyss. Realize that the demons are designed to go after not believers, but strictly unbelievers. And so this is judgment and wrath that does not come upon any believer, but strictly the unbelievers of the world. What you're going to see in this message today, and what I'll probably do is hold off questions to the last 10 minutes, because I want to get through so that we're going to take a lot of data that we've had outstanding and kind of put it together. And what you're going to find out is that Jesus is depicted as the greater Joshua. Think about that. Jesus' name is the same as Joshua's name, Yeshua. The first Joshua brings the people of God into the promised land. The greater Jesus is going to bring his people into the ultimate promised land. The first Joshua kicked the Nephilim out that we've been talking about. Jesus kicks the demonic-led nations out of the promised land. And so Jesus, you're going to see, is the greater Joshua. David, David vanquished he and his son Solomon, the Nephilim, once and for all. You're going to see evidence of that today. Jesus, the greater David, vanquishes the enemies of God once and for all. So Jesus is seen then as the greater Joshua and the greater David. And you'll see evidence of that here today. And my prayer is that'll show you not only how loving Christ is, but what a great warrior he is also on our behalf. I think of Exodus 15, 3. Do you remember when Moses is singing about the great redemption that Yahweh brought as he brought them out of Egypt? Song of Moses. Exodus 15, 3. He says in that verse, Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. And so that's what we're going to be seeing here through these judgments, that Yahweh is a warrior on our behalf. So let's begin as we look at something that's a little strange, this bottomless pit that's being opened. Revelation 9, verses 1 through 2. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Notice here, we know this is the fifth trumpet because of the fifth angel. Sorry, I've got some sinus troubles. I'm just going to be taking my cough drops here. The fifth trumpet is always connected, obviously, to the fifth angel. So the fourth angel would be connected to the fourth trumpet, the sixth angel, the sixth trumpet, etc. But one of the things we have to wrestle with in this text is notice what's in red. What in the world is the star? Well, turn your Bibles back to Revelation 8.10, if you will. 
And I'm going to show you that some have suggested that the star is a meteor. And I'll show you why they believe this. Revelation 8.10. Notice it says, The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters. So people have concluded, well, perhaps this star is also a meteor. But what's the problem with that? Well, notice this star is given the key to the bottomless pit. So there's authority given to a star. You don't give authority to a meteor, right? Now, there's ample evidence to suggest that through the book of Revelation, a star represents an angel. And I want to give you an example of that. I think this star is clearly referring to an angel. That's the imagery that's used throughout the book of Revelation. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 12.4. Revelation 12.4, and you'll see that stars are most often associated with angels. By the way, as you're turning to Revelation 12.4, some commentators claim that this star was a man. It was Muhammad, as Muhammad led warfare against Christians throughout history. I think that's a very fanciful reading. Again, the image in Scripture and Revelation itself shows us that the star, I think, is an angel. Okay, notice Revelation 12.4, talking about the dragon, that's obviously Satan. Notice it says, "...in his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth he might devour her child." So notice a third of the stars, these are obviously the angels, were thrown down. We know in Isaiah 14.12... You have Satan who really stands behind the king of Babylon. And it says in Isaiah 14, 12, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. So throughout scripture, a star is often associated with an angel. And so here you have an angel who I believe is a good angel who is tasked with having authority over this bottomless pit. That's what's going on here. So notice the key of the bottomless pit was given to him indicating that angels don't have this authority in and of themselves. The authority over the abyss is something that God alone has, but he dispenses his authority to his angels. So they are doing his bidding. So I think that that's fair to say also that this is a good angel. Notice we also have a connection with this bottomless pit to a passage we had studied a few weeks ago. That's 2 Peter 2.4. This along with Jude 6 both show that these angels that are being let let out of the abyss were one time locked away in the abyss. Remember 2 Peter 2, 4, it said, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, and he goes on to say, how much more will he do that to those who are sinning now? But notice here, the angels that sinned, what angels were they? Well, they were the angels in Genesis 6, weren't they? The angels who went after women, right? So that's why if we don't understand the paradigm from Genesis 6, if we think that the sons of God were the godly line of Seth in Genesis 6, we're completely clueless in Revelation chapter 9. All of a sudden you see demons, these fallen angels coming out of the pit that they're locked away, but you never know why they were locked away there in the first place. Well, if you understand Genesis 6, that the sons of God went after these daughters of men and that these were angelic beings, all of a sudden you say, ah, the angels who sinned in Genesis 6 and were locked away, they're now being let out. 
And so what I'm going to show you is this is going to help us understand a correlation between what happened in Genesis and what happens in Revelation. They're bookends of the story. Okay? Joshua, the first Joshua, ends up kicking these Nephilim that come from the demons out of the promised land. Jesus, when he returns, kicks them ultimately out of the promised land. David conquered the Nephilim, 2 Chronicles 8. Jesus is ultimately going to conquer over them at his second coming. So you're going to see this whole thing come together and be tied together like a big ribbon on a present for you. That's what I hope anyway. Now, the other thing I want to point out is notice where these angels are in this bottomless pit. It's very interesting, the term bottomless pit, the term bottomless comes from buso or abuso. Buso means a pit and or a depth. The a, the alpha privative, means without depth. It means limitless. Okay, so it's a limitless pit that these fallen angels were being placed into. All right, now, the reason I want to wrestle with that is where is this bottomless pit? Well, I would believe it's in the spiritual realm. But you're going to notice that here in the text, it says he opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Now, this is exceedingly unusual because I believe the pit is obviously within the spiritual realm and yet its smoke is darkening what we see as the physical realm. And so for the first time I know of, uh, at least in the book of Revelation, you have a melding here of both the physical and the spiritual realms, okay? So I wanted to give you another example of this from Scripture where you see it. Turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6. In fact, you know what? I'm going to have to pull it up because I, I forgot to put it in my notes. 2 Kings 6. And what I want to show you is conceive of our world as we have a physical realm, And we have an unseen realm, the spiritual realm. But that doesn't mean that the unseen realm doesn't exist. It's just that with our five senses, we can't perceive it. But it really does exist. So, for example, why does that matter? Well, when you die, I think a lot of Christians, at least I used to have this idea, is that we're kind of ethereal. We don't really exist until we get our resurrection. But no, I think we will exist because those saints who are in heaven, who are Without the resurrected body, they know who God is. They're able to worship him and cry praises to him, etc. So I want to show you how this spiritual realm should be conceived of in relationship to the physical realm. 2 Kings chapter 6. Remember here you have the Arameans. They want to kill Elisha because he's spilling the beans as to where their military location is. And notice here, I'm trying to remember what verse it is exactly. 17. 17, oh, thank you, Bob. Okay, yes, tur- go down to verse 15, 2 Kings 15, uh, 6.15. It says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. So stop there. This city is called Dothan, and what happens is you have the Arameans' army. They're surrounding Dothan because that's where Elisha is, and they want to kill him. So you can imagine the servant wakes up, he looks out the window, and there's this whole army around him, and he gulps, right? As in the servant says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid. This is Elisha. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We'll just stop there for the sake of time. Think about this. In the spiritual realm, there were really these angelic forces that were going to protect Elisha. But notice how close it is. It's imminent. It's at hand, isn't it? It's Yeah, Brian. Isn't there lots of examples of the meshing of the unseen realm in the Bible? Yeah, I'm just saying in the book of Revelation, this is one of our first examples where you see the spiritual realm have direct effect on the physical realm. I mean, you literally see smoke coming from something in the spiritual realm that's obscuring something in what we'd say the physical realm. And so that's very unusual. But what I'm trying to show is that both realms do exist. It's not that the unseen realm doesn't exist. It does. It's just here you have, I think, I don't think the bottomless pit is something in the earth. I don't think that there's a bottomless pit that also opens up in the earth. I think that it's within the spiritual realm. That's why it's without end. Abuso. Buso means depth. Abuso is without depth. It's limitless. Why? Exactly. There would be some limit to it. So I think it's within the spiritual realm. So you have now the spiritual realm affecting the physical realm. And the same thing occurs with the demons. They're locked away within the spiritual realm. Now they're going to be affecting man in the physical realm. So very unusual, but yet I think that's clearly what the scriptures are teaching us here. Okay, so in this 70th week of Daniel, you're going to see a mixing of the spiritual and the physical realm. They're going to come into contact in a different way than they normally operate now. All right, now, who are these locusts? Well, in verse 3, it says, Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. Well, I've already mentioned before that these locusts must, in fact, be demons. I don't think they're actually locusts. Let me give you four reasons why. Number one, they come out of the abyss. Okay, how many know that locusts don't come up out of the abyss? (laughs) We may think they do if we ever have to deal with them, but these come up out of the abyss. Number two, these locusts have the destroying angel Abaddon or Apollyon over them. We'll see that when we get to verse 11 of Revelation chapter 9. That's very important. There's actually an angel that's over these locusts. Number three, they attack rather than man, or they attack mankind rather than green things. What do normal locusts attack? Well, they eat green things. They strip the land of the vegetation. These attack man. Demons also in the book of Revelation are seen as taking on various forms. When we get to Revelation 16, 13, you'll see demons take on the form of frogs. We know angels in Genesis 19 took the form of men. So they're able to take on various forms. But one of the questions we should ask is why are these demons being depicted as locusts? Well, I think that John is making a connection. Number one, I think that they really look like that. I think he's using phenomenological language. He's describing what they really look like. But what God is doing, and therefore what John is doing, is he's showing us a connection back to the book of Joel. In the book of Joel, there was a locust invasion. Now, let me just stop there. The book of Joel, there's debate as to when it was written, whether it was written pre-exilic or post-exilic. I think it was written pre-exilic because it talks about these northern armies. The first northern army that attacks Israel attacks in 722. 
So I think that Joel was written probably 8th century. I think he's alluding to this invasion that's going to happen. So in the book of Joel, the people of Israel have been sinning, and God's wrath comes first in the form of locusts, and then in the form of a northern army that comes from Assyria and then Babylon. Now, who's ultimately behind these armies that come from the north? The demonic realm. Why? Remember, what's Mount Zaphon? It's Mount Hermon. Where is Mount Hermon located? It's to the north. That's where the enemies of God come from. And so you see, it's not just physical. It's demonic. It's spiritual as well. It's an attack against Israel, and yet God is using it for his wrath. Now, in the book of Revelation, these locusts are going to represent, obviously, real demons. But they're also, in Revelation chapter 16, going to gather physical armies, not just from the north, now from the whole world. And they're going to come against God. And who's behind it? The demons are. Well, I'll show you a quote here later in Revelation 16, 13. So what God wants us to see is that the same thing that happened in the book of Joel is now happening, but to a much greater extent, in the book of Revelation. What was Joel ultimately about from chapter 228 all the way through the rest of the book? It's about the day of the Lord. So what God is showing us now that the day of the Lord is here, the real locusts come. Okay, so here, let's put it together. Turn your Bibles to Joel 1.6. Joel 1.6, and we'll start unpacking some of the data here. Excuse me, I'm sorry, Joel 1.4, first of all. We'll just be looking at a few passages for the sake of time. Joel chapter 1, verse 4. Again, I think Joel is writing before the exile. I think he's writing 8th century because these northern armies are going to be Assyria and Babylon. And they obviously don't come until 722 and 586, respectively, are the destructions. Joel 1.4, it says, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Now, notice this is a real judgment. These locusts are really taking it to the vegetation within Israel, and it is seen as the very wrath of God. More than likely, what Joel is doing in Joel 1.4 is he's using an image like, have you ever heard of the joke, um, the man is in a hole, he's a cowboy, and he's in a rodeo, and this bull keeps chasing him, and he hits him all the time. Well, then he gets down in the hole. Well, then he gets out of the hole, and the bull runs him over again. Finally, a spectator says, well, why don't you just stay down in the hole? He says, there's a bear down there. (laughs) Now, that's a bad day. You're caught between a bull and a bear, right? Well, Joel is saying the same thing. He says, you just go from one locust to another. It just gets worse and worse and worse, and then everything's gone. It's that bad. It's a judgment upon the land of Israel, the very judgment that God had promised would come if they broke covenant in Deuteronomy 28, that their vegetation would be stripped from the land. But notice now, two verses later, There is a melding of these locusts that are real, physical locusts, to what they are imaging, which is this northern army. Notice it says in Joel 1.6, it says, For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. So stop there. Now you see the melding of, wait a minute, Is he talking about physical locusts? 
Or is he talking about this army who will come? Well, it's starting to obscure it, isn't it? It's starting to obscure which it is. Now, turn your Bibles ahead to Joel 2.20. I'll show you that, in fact, the locusts are real, but they're also foreshadowing this army that would come from the north. The Assyrians first, and then the Babylonians. Now, as you're turning to Joel 2.20, remember when we were doing our studies, Nimrod, back in Genesis 10, we said, was one of the Nephilim. Remember, he came from the demonic realm. He was one of the ones who was trying to make a name for himself. And what did Nimrod establish? He established Assyria and Babylon, the enemies who come from the north. So you see the demonic connection between the armies that come from the north, right? Joel 2.20, look at the promise that God gives. He says, but I will remove the northern army far from you. And I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea and its stench will arise and its false smell will come up for it has done great things. So in Joel 2.20 now you certainly see that this army invasion is a literal army invasion of men that comes from the north. And so the locusts represent this army that comes. Just like the locusts cover the land, the Assyrians and the Babylonians covered the land when they came. Okay? Think of it this way. Let me show you a little chiasm. I'll just put it all up here. This is part of Joel. And let me just pull up my laser pointer. I usually am a disaster with my pointer, but we're praying for better things today. Notice, first of all, you have the locust plague, Joel 1, 2 through 20. Well, then all of a sudden he switches to the northern army, which the locusts are real, but they also represent this northern army, the Assyrians, later the Babylonians. Well, then there's a transition. If there's repentance, there's going to be a response by Yahweh. He is going to do what? He's going to destroy the northern army, 220. And then there's forgiveness. The locust ravaged land will be restored, 221 through 27. Now, when you get to 228, what does he transition to? The future day of the Lord. The future day of the Lord. This is all foreshadowing that future day of the Lord. So let's take the book of Revelation and think about how the same pattern occurs. Book of Revelation, now we're thousands of years later in the 70th week of Daniel, and there's a locust plague that comes up and it's demons. Revelation, this is Revelation 9. Revelation 16, these demons bring an army to surround Jerusalem. Revelation shine. Chapter 19, you have the midpoint, Jesus returns. Revelation 19, 13, you have the northern army or all the armies destroyed. Revelation chapter 20, the land is restored, the millennial kingdom. So what I'm showing you is the same pattern then unfolds in the 70th week of Daniel. So these locusts are real, they're real demons, but they're also going to bring about all of the human armies to surround Jerusalem. In fact, turn your Bibles to Revelation 16, 13, and I'll show you evidence of this. Revelation 16, 13. Revelation 16, 13. It says this, it says, this is John speaking. He says, and I saw coming 
out of the mouth of the dragon, of course, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, there's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. So stop there. These unclean spirits now look like frogs. So here in chapter 9, they look like locusts. So what's going on? Well, they can change to different forms. And one of the reasons why now they look like frogs is because now John is making a connection to the plagues that happened in the book of Exodus. Okay? So here, it, see, it, so here's the point. It doesn't really matter what the demons look like. The author is saying they look like this, they look like that. But what he's doing is he's pointing you to different things that happened in the Old Testament. So notice what these demons do now. Verse 14, he says, For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world. So now you have kings involved that have armies to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Now, here when we get to verse 15, we have a parenthetical comment. So this isn't part of the narrative. This is part of a parenthetical comment where God is saying, look, in light of the bad news, remember this, my people. He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that they will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. That's a parenthetical comment. In light of this terrible news, John wants us to know that, look, Jesus is imminent. It's at hand. If you trust in him, you're not going to be a victim of this great battle. You're going to be saved. That's the idea. Then he goes to verse 16. He says, and they gathered them. So the demons are the ones who are doing the gathering. Ultimately, they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Okay? So think about it. Now you have these demons who are bringing about the physical human army. In the book of Joel, the locusts represented the physical human army that came against Jerusalem and against the people of God. So you see the same pattern once again. Okay? Now, we're going to see some other patterns here from the old to the new as we continue. But does that all make sense? Does anybody have any points of confusion? I just want to make sure everyone sees the connection there. So, by the way, we'll talk more about Harmageddon. Uh, Bob has read this, too, in the Unseen Realm, the book that was written by Michael Heiser. And Harmageddon has often been seen or understood by scholars as the Mount of Megiddo. But I think, or not Walter Kaiser, Heiser, Michael Heiser, makes a very compelling case that Harmageddon should be seen as the Mount of Assembly. And the reason why this is important is because the last battle occurs not in the plain of Megiddo, but around Jerusalem, where the enemies will be slaughtered. And so we'll talk more about where this location of Harmageddon or Harmageddon really is. Okay? All right, so with that, let me turn to the next slide here where we see tangible contact with demons once again. Revelation 9, 4 through 5. Now here he's speaking of the, the demons, those locusts. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, which normally they would, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were, permitted, they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment, was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. So again, notice these locusts, they don't go after grass or vegetation as a normal locust would, but they go specifically after mankind, men and women. But notice it's not all of humanity that they go after. Who do they go after? 
they go after those who don't have the seal of God. Remember back in Revelation 7, we saw the 144,000 that were sealed? These are the believers that are on earth, and they're not going to be gone after by these demonic hordes. And so God is able to protect his own while he's pouring his wrath through these demons upon the unregenerate on the earth. I think that's what we clearly see. I also want you to see here is notice we have a tangible contact. This is very strange. Right now, we do not have tangible contact between the angelic realm, between demons from the abyss, and between human beings. And this is part of God's merciful plan that during the church age, there would be no tangible contact. He's gracious to us in that. But here, all of a sudden, we see tangible contact come back. And it's as if God says to fallen humanity, you want tangible contact with the demonic realm so bad? Well, here you go. He gives them their very desire, doesn't he? Yeah, reprobation, exactly right. Now, notice, I think there's another, we can think of this as another pattern that sets up for us. Think about it this way. There was tangible contact between humanity and the fallen angels in Genesis 6. Okay, there's this tangible. Now, it's sexual, it's not a stinging, but there's, there's tangible contact is the point. Well, this tangible contact is taken away at some point. Now, notice I say at the time of David, question mark. That's because we're not explicitly told in Scripture when the tangible contact between the angelic beings and human beings is taken away, but it does occur. What we can say is that at the time of David and Solomon, the Nephilim, who are the offspring of the contact between the angels and humanity, they're subdued completely. Okay, does that make sense? So what I'm, I'm just simply giving a hypothesis saying perhaps it's during the time of David that there's finally no longer this contact. Okay, now, the reason I say that is because now when we get to Revelation 9, you have tangible contact once again, albeit not very pleasurable. It's going to be the stinging of mankind, right, that are the unregenerate. But what happens is contact, tangible contact will be taken away again when the greater David shows up. The greater David being Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he returns and sends these demons where? In Revelation 20, he sends them to the eternal lake of fire. Remember in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says that hell was created for Satan and his angels. And that's where Jesus is going to send them. So what we're going to see is David was a foreshadowing then of what the ultimate David, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would end up doing. And so I think we see another pattern showing up in Scripture. Let me give you a little timeline. You know I'm a big... Oh, yeah, Bob. We get a mic. No, that's good. (laughs) Yeah, what's wrong with me? (laughs) I wrote about this, I don't know, years ago? Yeah. But it's interesting in Revelation 9 that after this whole episode, it says, and they did not repent of their sorceries, even though it was horrific and tormenting, humans lust for contact with the spirit world, Yes, and they lust for it so badly that they'd rather be stung by scorpions than not have it. Wow. They don't repent. Well said. They won't do things God's way. Yeah. See, God gave us faith in Messiah. 
Amen. who came tangibly to earth and who bodily ascended into heaven. Right. From that time on, the occult is this lust for contact with the spirit world. God gives it to them. It's horrible. He takes it away again, and they don't repent. They want it back. Well said. Yeah, amen. Yeah, think about the, um, like in the book of 1 Corinthians, we know that there's temple prostitutes. We know in Asia Minor, when John is writing to the churches there, one of the big problems is there are temple prostitutes. Well, what are these temple prostitutes trying to do? Well, they're trying to enable humanity to have tangible contact again. And so we see throughout the Eastern world, now in the Western world, there's a longing for tangible contact. Now, they don't know it's demons. People don't say, I want to have tangible contact with demons. But that's exactly what yoga does. Yoga is opening people up to the contact with the goddess, with the god of this world, as it were. And so they're longing to have tangible contact. And as Bob said, even when they're stung because they're in such a reprobate state, they won't repent of their sorceries and of their immorality. Yeah, very good point. Um, in fact, Bob, to comment, do you still have the microphone? I'm sorry. Um, do, do you, you and Keith Gentoff used to do a lot of research in this arena. And well, just explain. I mentioned one time when I was yeah. preaching about 1 Corinthians 5. Yeah. And uh, a man who commits immorality sins against his own body. Yeah. And it was in the context of temple prostitution. Right. And I was hoping somebody would ask, but nobody did. So <laughs> I'll tell you anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> in the pagan temples, <clears throat> this is a religious ceremony. Okay. Yeah. And these priests who were prostitutes were surrogates for the spirit realm. Right. And so these immoral men would go to the pagan temple and commit acts of immorality as a surrogate for contact with the spirit world. Exactly. And when Paul said the one who commits immorality sins against his own body. He's alluding to other teaching in 1 Corinthians where Paul says our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Okay, so if your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit and you're indwelt by God and you go down to this temple because you're used to doing it and they have these spiritual slash physical prostitutes. Yeah. For the spirit world, right? You're sinning against your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you didn't ask, and now you know anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> no, very well said. So we who are in union with God, when we have sexual immorality, when they would go to these temple practices, now they're in union with a demon, and that's what even was happening with the the eating of meat that was sacrificed to idols. Paul says, "Look, how can you have union?" with both your Lord and the table of demons. How can you do both? But Eric, wouldn't yeah. that be wouldn't that be the same though if you had sexual relations with any woman who's not your wife, wouldn't that fall into the same parameter of committing adultery or having Absolutely, an affair? Absolutely, it's all sin. Right. 
Yep. But like, isn't there protection? If you have, you're having sexual relations with your own wife, you're protected, right? Oh, absolutely. But if you're outside of that realm, it's wicked sin. I mean, wouldn't that be kind of akin to it? Exactly. So it's boundary crossing. Think about in Jude, the false teachers are saying we can cross any boundaries we want. And they're saying that because they say Jesus isn't coming back. Second Peter, false teachers are saying Jesus isn't coming back. We can live any immoral lifestyle we want. But what both Peter and Jude do is they say, well, no, Jesus has intervened in history before that God has. He intervened in the flood. He intervened in creation. He intervened in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. With the angels, he intervened. And all of them were crossing boundaries. Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels, they were crossing sexual boundaries. So what happened to them? They were destroyed. What happens to those who cross sexual boundaries? They'll be destroyed. So the only way out is to repent and come to Jesus Christ, be filled by the Spirit, and become the temple of God. So you're the temple of either a demon or you're going to be the temple of God. It's one or the other. Think about the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, they're going to make a name for themselves, and all of their bricks are the same sticky bricks all built upon one another. But you and I are depicted as stones built in a spiritual temple, filled together, not by the works of men or the works of man's hands, but by the mortar of the Holy Spirit. You're a building being built that belongs to God. And what Paul was saying and what Bob's pointing out is how can you join that which belongs to God to a demon? Isn't that horrific? So that's some of the imagery that I think is all connected here with what's going on in Revelation chapter 9. Now, I love timelines, and I admit this is a bad one as far as timelines are concerned because I'm covering so much history obviously here you have the flood which who knows that's thousands and thousands of years ago right well then david and solomon we're talking 980 bc range 990 and the 70th week of daniel still in the future so i realize we're coming covering a lot of time here but here's what i want you to see notice here at genesis 6 you had tangible contact with human beings with the demonic realm with the fallen angels Okay, now the flood comes and it wipes out this initial batch of Nephilim. But the question is, they obviously come back because Joshua has to fight them, David has to fight them. So why is it that they're not completely wiped out? Well, there's two possible reasons. Number one, the flood wasn't global. Now, I do believe that the best evidence suggests from the Bible and from science that there was a global flood. So the other possibility is that God says in his word in Genesis 6-4 that this was something that was going to occur again afterward. In fact, turn your Bible to Genesis 6-4. I just want you to see where the words are actually present. Genesis 6-4. So again, this is the account where the angels went after the daughters of men. And it explains what was going on at that time. It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Now, just stop there. The Nephilim, recall, was the race that was generated from the physical contact between angels and humans. Now you have the Nephilim, and notice it says, and also afterward. So it wasn't just in the days of the flood, but according to Genesis 6-4, it also happened afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So here's the point. The flood wipes out the people who are the Nephilim, 
the contact between, remember the result of the contact between the angels and the humans? They're wiped out at the flood, but they come back again. So more than likely, these angels keep doing this. Now, how long does that last? We don't know. But let me give you a suggestion. Think about, let's make sure we get our category straight. When we're talking Nephilim, we're talking about human beings. So what I'm wrestling with is what evidence do we have of when the contact between the angels and the humans stopped? We're not specifically told. But one thing that we can deduce is that we know when these Nephilim are wiped out, it's a good bet that there's no longer contact between the angels and humans. Otherwise, you'd keep getting Nephilim again. Is everyone with me? So what we see is evidence that at the time of David, according to 2 Chronicles 8, David and his son Solomon completely subdue the Nephilim. So we know for sure at that point there's no longer any contact between angels and humans. There's no more tangible contact. Why? Because otherwise you'd have more Nephilim to deal with. Okay? And certainly they're subdued by the time of Solomon. David and his son. Yeah, Brian. Also, the Rephalim, which the Bible tells us that Goliath came out of. Yeah, exactly. So I'm using Nephilim as a very generic, broad... Yeah, because there's Amorites and Amalekites. And, and in fact, we'll talk a little bit about that. There's various names um, for them. So, so here's what I want you to see. What the Israelites are wrestling with during the conquest of the land, what Joshua is doing, is he is kicking out these Nephilim. Turn your Bibles to Joshua 11.22. Joshua 11.22. So as Joshua kicks out the enemies of God from the promised land, Jesus, the greater Joshua, is going to kick out all of the enemies and will land in security. So he's the one who brings the people into the ultimate promised land. Joshua 11.22. Here's part of the northern campaign. It says, there were no Anakim. Now, Anakim would have been part of the Nephilim. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod, some remained. So these are part of the Nephilim, these Anakim. Notice he's saying that Joshua does a good job. He kicks most of them out, but there are some that remain in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Well, that's where the Philistines come from, right? That's where David ends up fighting Goliath. He's one of them. So he's one of the Nephilim. So the point is Joshua does a good job, but he doesn't wipe them all out. So there's some that remain. And what we see is David is depicted as a mighty warrior, a mighty warrior-like king who foreshadows the ultimate warrior king, Jesus. So David ends up being the one who conquers them finally, he and his son. Now, one thing I want to point out is Canaan is sometimes used two different ways. Canaan can be seen generically as the land of Canaan and all of its inhabitants. And the inhabitants of Canaan are consisting of various groups, but many of them are Nephilim. So one of the reasons God wants the wiping out of the inhabitants of Canaan is because he wants to get rid of these Nephilim. Okay, is everyone with me? Sometimes Canaan, however, refers to a specific tribe that's living in Canaan. So just be aware that it's used two different ways. Turn your Bible to Deuteronomy 20, 17. I want you to see that there was a command given by God to his people to wipe them out, the Nephilim. And the Nephilim inhabit various tribes within Canaan. But sometimes Canaan just refers to one of the tribes within Canaan. Okay, does that make sense? So if I say I'm an American, I'm using it because I'm part of the United States of America. But I'm also part of North America. You see what I'm saying? 
So sometimes America can refer to North America, but sometimes it just refers to our country. Canaan can do the same thing. Sometimes Canaan refers to the land and all of the inhabitants. Sometimes it refers to a specific tribe within Canaan. Okay, Deuteronomy 20:17. God commands, he says, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, and of course, what? That's right, the termite. <laughs> Just kidding. As Yahweh your God has commanded you. Does everyone see that? So all of these tribes then are filled with the Nephilim. That's why he wants them to wipe, wipe them out. And notice the phrase utterly destroy them. The term in Hebrew is ha-karem. Now ha-karem, ha is the definite article. Karem is destruction. They're devoted to destruction. And so this is the ultimate holy war. You see, the jihadists now, think about the Muslims, they distort holy war. They go after human beings made in the image of God. But God gave a real holy war, and that was for his people to wipe out the Nephilim, this bastard race, between the demonic and man. That was a real holy war. And so when people say, well, this God that you serve, Christians, is no better than the God of the Muslims. After all, didn't God command the wiping out of the Canaanites? Do any of them know that were, they were wiping out a demonic-spawned race? Well, of course, because that would be too much work to do that much study for our average unregenerate citizen in the United States, right? So they don't know any of that. So they make a moral equivalency between Yahweh and the God of Islam, not knowing the distinctions and the difference, okay? Now, one thing I want to point out then is they're supposed to be taking out the land of Canaan. Well, notice in First Chronicles 1, 13 through 14, who Canaan was. Now, this is talking about the man. It says, Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Girgashites. I should have put Girgashites in red as well. But I want you to see that Canaan is an immoral man. We see that all the way back in Genesis 9. Okay? Genesis 9 is theologically stating the reason why Canaan is so wicked. He does the same thing that Ham does. He engages in the same practices of the Canaanites of the land. So Canaan is really brought forward even in Genesis 9. Now you see Canaan is the spawn of the Jebusites. The Jebusites are part of the Nephilim. And why is that important? Because David comes on the scene, from whom the Messiah comes, this great warrior king. And who does he take Jerusalem from? Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is opposed to what? Mount Zaphon. Mount Zaphon, not Zaphon, but Mount Zaphon and Mount Hermon. <laughs> right? Mount Hermon, where the demons come down. That's where the enemies of the north come from. But God is going to place his king in Mount Zion. So who does it first? King David. But King David is merely a foreshadowing of the ultimate David, the Messiah, who's going to reign forever from Mount Zion. So 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 7, it says, Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Aha! Here's some Nephilim. And what do they do? It says, The inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, You shall not come in here. But the blind and the lame will turn you away. So they're taunting him, thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. So David conquers the Nephilim in Jerusalem. Now, turn your Bibles uh, ahead here to 2 Samuel 8, 1. 2 Samuel 8, 1. I want to show you further where David ends up conquering. As you're turning to 2 Samuel 8, remember this occurs right after the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that there's going to be a greater son who comes from David 
who ultimately is the Messiah. But Solomon, in some sense, is a foreshadowing of that, the greater David, but he fails too. Okay, but notice here in 2 Samuel 8, I'll explain why that's important. 2 Samuel 8, 1, it says, Now after this came about that David defeated the Philistines, again, laden with the Nephilim. Remember, we have the giant. Who's that big giant that he ends up fighting? Goliath. Goliath, that's right. So he's this big, nasty Nephilim. He's part of the Philistines. Well, David, it says, took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. So see how David is succeeding against the Nephilim. But we know that David isn't perfect. He falls into sin. And and his son, Solomon, ends up carrying on his work. Now, 2 Chronicles 8, I'm going to fast forward here. 2 Chronicles 8, 4 through 8, listen to what Solomon, the son who foreshadows Christ, who's going to be the ultimate son, listen to what he's able to accomplish. 2 Chronicles 8, 4 through 8, this is Solomon. It says, he also built up Beth Haran and lower Beth Haran, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars, and Balath and all the storage cities that Solomon had, and all the cities for his chariots, and cities for his horsemen, and all that it pleased Solomon to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land under his rule. All of the people who were left of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, so here's all the Nephilim, who were not of Israel, notice they're not even of Israel, namely from their descendants who were left after them in the land whom the sons of Israel had not destroyed, remember they were commanded to destroy them, them Solomon raised as forced laborers to this day. Now, who wrote Second Chronicles? I think it's Ezra. I think there were sources that Ezra takes from, but Ezra is the one who puts the finishing touches on it. Well, when is Ezra writing this? Probably around 450 B.C. So for 600 years, Ezra is saying, to this very day, they've been wiped out. They're subdued. We've we've taken care of them. Well, how could that be possible if you had contact between the angels and humanity who are constantly producing more Nephilim? So my only point in saying that is we know certainly by David and Solomon, the Nephilim, or I'm sorry, the tangible contact that produces the Nephilim is done away with. Now, why is this all important? Well, let's go back to our timeline. So you had tangible contact here before the flood, but we still had Nephilim after it. There's still contact between the demonic and human beings. But at the time of Solomon and David, there's a conquering And the tangibility has gotten rid of. Fast forward to the 70th week of Daniel. Tangibility comes back. God says, you want to have tangible contact with the demonic? Well, here you go. And it's only on the unregenerate. But who comes back and completely obliterates them as he sends them all into the eternal lake of fire in Revelation 20? The greater David, Jesus. And he subdues them, not just for a while, but once and for all. So Jesus, therefore, is depicted as the greater Joshua and the greater David. And so what I would like to suggest is that Jesus here in Revelation is being depicted as our great warrior. Consider this. Joshua's conquest kicks the Nephilim out of the promised land. Jesus' conquest kicks the demon-led nations. Remember at the battle of Armageddon? He kicks them out of the promised land. Jesus is the greater Joshua. He's the one who brings the people into the ultimate promised land. 
David conquered the Nephilim, David and his son. But here Jesus comes and he conquers Satan and his demons, throws them into the pit forever from whom the Nephilim came. He's the greater David. Brothers and sisters, you and I serve a Jesus who is the most tender of all shepherds. Such a tender shepherd that if there's one of his sheep that's lost, he's depicted as going looking for him or her. But yet this very tender shepherd to us is the fiercest of all warriors against the enemies of God and on our behalf. He's both, isn't he? He's our tender shepherd, but he's also a fierce warrior. And that's why I love when Moses cries out in the Song of Moses, Exodus 15, 3. He says, Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Who is the greatest warrior of all? The Lord Jesus Christ. In our day and age, warriors aren't uplifted in American culture. I always laugh in left-wing schools. They have all these freedoms to say all these things. And I remember my little boy he likes to put on camouflage. He dreams of being a Navy SEAL someday. And the liberals that inhabit these schools scoff at that. They scoff at the warrior class. And yet the only way that they have that freedom is from the men who shed their blood. Right? Isn't it amazing? No greater love has a man than this than he's willing to lay his life down for his friends. And so I just want to suggest that when we look at the warrior class today, there is a godly element to that, isn't there? Now, that doesn't mean we go to war uh, willy-nilly or we try to hurt people for no cause. But the role of government, according to, to Romans 13, is to restrain evil. It's not to redistribute wealth. The left takes over government. The role of government becomes redistributing wealth. The role of government is to restrain evil. And so here Jesus is one who ultimately restrains evil like no one else ever could, all for the sake of his people. And I praise God for that. So one thing I want to challenge all of us with here as we conclude is what name do you bear? I want you to think about how I began this whole series. When we were talking about the Nephilim, I said, remember the Nephilim came to bring a name for Satan. Remember in Genesis 11? Genesis 11, the Nephilim-inspired people come to Babel, and they say, come, let us make a name for ourselves. They want to glorify themselves. By the way, Babel is going to be rebuilt, isn't it, in the 70th week of Daniel. Why? Because the world wants to make a name for itself, not for God. Let's think about it broadly. The world is trying to earn salvation works. They're going to build Babylon. God brings salvation by grace. He brings about the new Jerusalem, right? It's a tale of two cities, isn't it? So in Revelation 14, 11, here we have a prediction of doom for the beast and followers. It says, and the smoke of their torment, this is for the followers of the beast, goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, if you receive the mark of someone's name, it means you're characterized by them. You're associated with them. These, this is Satan's seed. In the 70th week of Daniel, they're going to take upon themselves the mark where they show their allegiance to the one that they belong to. But, Notice what it says of us. God's seed began in Genesis 12, the very next chapter out of, after Genesis 11. God takes one man, Abraham, and he's going to make him a great name. 
so that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob becomes Israel is going to bear messianic salvation so that we all, through Jesus Christ, can make God a great name. And then it comes full circle when you get to Revelation 22, 4, talking about the people of God who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, have their sins forgiven, they're living in the New Jerusalem. It says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Brothers and sisters, what name do you bear? And by God's grace, I know that you, name, you bear the name of God because you came to faith in Jesus Christ, not only the tender shepherd, but the mighty warrior who brought salvation forever, not just for a little while in the promised land, but who's going to bring salvation forever in the ultimate promised land without end. That's what I want you to see. That's why I think it's so significant, this paradigm that Bob and I have been working on. If we don't understand that paradigm, I don't think any of this makes sense in light of what's going on within the 70th week of Daniel. If we don't understand this paradigm, how do we understand what Bob is teaching us in Acts 7 where the Israelites were given over to the host of heaven? None of it makes sense unless we understand the paradigm that happened all the way back in Genesis 6. So with that, we have five minutes. Let's take some questions. Yeah, Paul, we'll get you a mic, so anything you say, Ken, will be held against you. Thank <laughs> you very much. Way. I listen to this fellow by the name of Bob Dewey a lot. Yeah, I've heard of him. He's real good. Yeah, yeah. great guy, great guy. <laughs> he has described in great detail the word stoichia, yeah. and uh, would stoichia and the Nephilim be synonymous? Um, not synonymous. They're, they're related. In this, The stoichia would be the angelic realm. Okay, so the stoichia are the, the fallen angels who created the Nephilim. Does that make sense? So think of the Stoiki as part of the divine council, okay? And specifically, Paul is concerned about the evil portion of the divine council, okay, the host of heaven. So the Nephilim are always, think of them as the human offspring of what the Stoikia did. But when we come to the fallen angels, so Stoikia would be the, the divine council. But remember, this is what I believe the paradigm is, is you have angels... And a third of the angels follow Satan and they fall. So of those third, what I believe happened was a portion of them went after women. And the portion that went after women are locked away in the pit. But then there's another portion who didn't go after women and they're still active. That's why Jesus cast them out. And there, but there's some debate. Um, anyway, does that make sense? Yeah. Is that, is that helpful? So, so the stoichia is another term for the divine counsel, okay? So unless you come to Jesus Christ, you're still under the stoichia. Remember in Deuteronomy 32, all the nations are given to the sons of God, to the, to the host of heaven, okay? But there is one nation that belonged to Yahweh, that's Israel. So the only way that you and I can belong to God is by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And once we do, we escape being under the stoichia. So if someone wants to go back to the law, that can't save you, you're going back to the stoichia. You're going under the demonic doctrines. Does that make sense? So that's why Paul's bringing it up in both Galatians and also in Colossians. Bob, do you want to add something further to that? I'm sorry, uh, go ahead, and then we'll get to Bob. Yeah, the verse that says that as in the days of Noah, so it'll be at the end of the age. So wouldn't the stoich or not the stoichia, but wouldn't the Nephilim be making a comeback at the end of the age? No, um, the point of that quote... Uh, it's a very good question. Thank you. It's a very astute question. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. His whole point isn't talking about the same kind of sins that occur. His point is the suddenness. Okay? They were given in 
in marriage and life was going on as it always had happened and all of a sudden, sudden destruction came upon them. So the point in Noah's day is that what did the people of Noah have? Well, there was nothing to tip them off. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. They said, oh, rain's coming. They didn't have that. They had the preaching of one man. Okay, so all of a sudden, the regenerate, the believers are put in the ark. Sudden destruction comes. Noah's been preaching, 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 preaching. The people scoff at it, scoff at it. Everything's going on as it always has. What are you and I doing? We're preaching, we're preaching, we're preaching. There's nothing to tip anyone off. Destruction's coming. And all of a sudden, Christ comes. That's the suddenness. Because in Matthew 24, 36, he says, Now concerning the day and the hour. And all of a sudden, now Jesus is talking about, When does this 70th week of Daniel come? And he says eight different ways. You can't know, you can't know, you can't know. It's just like the days of Noah. In fact, in Hebrews eleven seven, Turn your Bibles to Hebrews eleven seven real quick. Sorry, Bob, we'll get right back to you because I know you got a lot to say in the Hebrews 11, 7. I just want to show you what it was like. This is the Hall of Fame of Faith section, of course. Hebrews eleven seven. Notice it says, Hebrews eleven seven, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Notice, he was convinced of things not yet seen. So what was there to tip off that age? Nothing. They just had the word of God. And that's what Jesus is picking up on. He's picking up on imminence. Remember Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign, but none will be given to it except what? Jonah. Sign of Jonah, which is what? The flood. The, the resurrection. Well, how do you know about the resurrection? Does anybody see it? No, they know it from preaching. So the only sign that this generation has is the preaching of God's word, which Bob is going to say today. He's going to give us the resurrection today. And the world, that's all they have. Just like in the days of Noah, and if they won't believe that, sudden destruction will come upon them and sweep them away, and there'll be nothing to tip them off. That's the point there. Does that make sense? Yep. Very good. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Sorry, I was getting all fired up there. This is so exciting. What wonderful material. Okay. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you're such a tender shepherd to us, that even when we falter in this life, you come for us. You come with discipline through your providential means. You come with scripture and our brothers and sisters. You care for us. But we also thank you that you're this great warrior who will defend the innocent, who will vindicate your name in the name of your father, We thank you, Lord Jesus, for these things as we celebrate your resurrection, your conquering even over death this morning. I pray for Bob and his voice. I pray, Lord, that you would give him a comfort on his voice as he speaks to us. And we pray, Lord, that if there are any unbelievers here during the sermon, that today would be their day to believe in Jesus Christ and become no longer an enemy of God, but one who has salvation through Jesus Christ, the great warrior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.